Hello there to my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It's great to be back on the air. It seems like it's been a while since I last spoke with you all, but, you know, we just recently celebrated the 4th of July holiday. Hard to believe our nation is 244 years old. You know, it seems like a long time, but in actuality, it, it's really not. We still are a young country, but we really have grown up a lot since declaring our independence from England. Today's focus is going to be talking about the last of the 13 colonies. Does anybody know who, the la- who this last colony is going to be? The answer is Georgia. What do we know about Georgia? Well, first off, we've got to get some geography straight. Georgia is bordered to the north by two states, being Tennessee and North Carolina. It's bordered to the northeast by South Carolina and to the south by Florida and to the west by Alabama. So that makes five states that Georgia is bordered by. Now, in colonial times, Georgia was only bordered by two states, South and North Carolina. There was no Alabama. As a matter of fact, Alabama is in the hands of um, Indians. Same with Florida and the same with Tennessee. Well, when was Georgia founded? In 1733. Georgia was the last and the southernmost of the original 13 colonies. And for whom is Georgia named after? King George II. Well, who is the chief founder of Georgia? Well, the answer is not King George II, even though the colony is named after him. A fellow by the name of James Oglethorpe. Well, how, is James Oglethorpe a um, true English man? The answer is yes. He was born in the year 1696, a British soldier, to being a member of Parliament and a philanthropist. And if any of you out there aren't sure what a philanthropist is, that a philanthropist is one who gives um, money to a noble cause or um, or sets his or her mind out on wanting to reform something that um, needs a great reform, not just within the community, but for um, perhaps for a city or for perhaps a state as well. Well, what made George um, James Oglethorpe such a great philanthropist? Well, he turned his what you call charitable work into uh, reforming debtors' prisons. In other words, he was a social reformer. Do any of you all know what are debtors' prisons? They are prisons for people who cannot pay debt. Well, I can tell you this much. Debtors' prisons were not confined to just one group of society. Those who are well-to-do, believe it or not, did spend time in debtors' prisons. Not to get ahead of the game, but um, Civil War General Robert E. Lee, or should I say the, the general or the head of the Confederate Army, His father, who was known as Light Horse Harry Lee, who played a big part in the American Revolution, spent the last years of his life in debtor's prison because he could not pay pay existing debts off to society. And unfortunately, debtor's prisons were not um, safe places for prisoners to be. And a lot of it had to do with uh, 
not just the physical treatment, but overall emotional uh, well-being of the prisoners. So in 1728, James Oglethorpe chairs a parliamentary committee on prison reform. And it turns out that uh, there were major abuses in multiple prisons. Well, are any of these prisoners released? They are, but there is a huge disadvantage. The prisoners who are released have no means of supporting themselves. So it's not like they could just wake up tomorrow and say, okay, I'm being released, now I've got to go find a job. Okay, well, who's going to hire these prisoners? So that's what was Oglethorpe's biggest concern, and he saw urbanization as the problem to it. Why so? Because cities had become so overcrowded to where people were economically being displaced from all walks of life. You know, and the biggest problem was that people were leaving rural areas. So in other words, farmlands to come to the city because they were convinced that they were going to have a better life. It turns out that their quality of life actually deteriorated in the city versus being in a rural setting. Think about it. If you live in a rural setting and you have a farm, you're not going to have to worry about competing with other people for jobs. But once you get into a city, it's one thing to be competing with two or three people, but all of a sudden now you're going to have to be compete, competing with ten or more people. And there's no guarantee for 100% success. And it's not just the success part, but we're talking job stability. Well, what did Mr. Oglethorpe have in mind to get uh, these people on the right track. He devised a plan, or not just a plan, but multiple plans on how towns and regions would be laid out and how property would be allocated, and not just property itself, but how society could be organized to defend itself on the frontier. So in other words, in order for Georgia to be a successful colony, everyone had to play a part. Everyone had to be on equal footing it's not about living happily ever after. Sure, you can have differences and disagreements, but we're going to have to come together as a community to work them out on the same level because we can't afford to burn bridges. We've got to have each other's backs. You know, when the English came to Jamestown in 1607 in Virginia to establish their, their settlement, we were told for years that everybody, you know, despite their differences, they all still work together. That is not true. The rich were convinced they were going to find all kinds of natural resources and not have to work for the rest of their lives. Um, that is a big false um, belief. The rich had to um, wake up, or should I say, they were forced to endure rude awakenings. Um, John Smith obviously said, those who shall not work shall not eat. Well, that's not what Mr. Oglethorpe was envisioning. However, the English crown had differences, and they made the crown itself made Georgia a military buffer for South Carolina against Spanish and Indian attacks. Any, any of you all know what a buffer is? A buffer is a protective zone. And think about it, South Carolina being to the northeast and to South Carolina's uh, southwest is Georgia, there has to be a buffer in between the two, to protect one another. So, as for James Oglethorpe, he serves as governor of Georgia from 1732 to 1743. He leaves a good legacy, but after he leaves Georgia in 1743, he never returns. What I found out to be even more interesting about him 
was that he lived to be 89 years old. He died in 1785. Now you think about it, people. He's born in 1696 and lives to be 89 in 1785. That, To me, that age is totally unheard of. For one, life expectancy is very um, low. And two, you think about diseases that people dealt with, even in Europe. Somehow, Mr. Oglethorpe must have found all the right ailments to take care of himself. Um, yes, he was active. He must have ate right. But what I find even more interesting is that he, it's not so much he dies in 1785, but look what he got to witness. He witnessed colonial America declare its independence from the United States, from England, and he saw colonial America defeat the world's mightiest empire being none other than his native homeland of England. It could be safe to say that Mr. Oglethorpe might have been a sympathetic um, supporter to the Patriots even after he had left Georgia in 1743. And to think when he left in the early 1740s, all 13 colonies were still on very good terms with England. And Mr. Oglethorpe knew that, but I don't think he ever thought in his wildest dreams that we would have declared our independence. But regardless, he got to live to see the inevitable happen. So after his time, uh, what other interesting things are there about Georgia? Well, in 1775... Mr. James Wright, who is the last royal governor, is dismissed by the royal assembly. He becomes a prisoner of the revolutionaries. I find that this interesting. It's bad enough to be ousted or dismissed, but to be taken as a prisoner? Boy, that's a, um, a scary realization. Now, in 1777, the original eight counties of the state were created... Because prior to, seven, prior to 1777, Georgia was divided into local government units called parishes. Interesting, in today's time, Louisiana doesn't call their counties counties. He, they, the state refers to them as parishes. And uh, the settlement of Georgia was limited near the vicinity of the Savannah River. Now, when we look at a map of Georgia in colonial days, what do we need to be reminded of? It's an easy answer. There's no Atlanta, Georgia. Georgia goes from Savannah to what we now know as Augusta, Georgia. So western, the western area of the state where we know of as Atlanta, Marietta, Fulton, all of that area is under, still under the control of an, Indian, of an Indian confederation known as the Creek Indian Confederation. I'll talk more about that here uh, in a little bit. What we do need to know is this. Um, how many men from Georgia signed the Declaration of Independence? The answer is between two and four. Well, the number is between two and four, but the answer is three. These three men were Lyman Hall, Button Gwinnett, and Mr. George Walton. And given that Georgia is the last of the 13 colonies, I figured why not talk about all three? Even these three men have a story to tell, just like the other signers that I have uh, discussed from the other 12 colonies. And in case any of you are wondering, how many other signers have I talked about up until Georgia, given that we've talked about the first 12? Okay, there, there were 56 men total who signed. I, have, I can tell you this, I've talked about 31. 
And given the three that I'll be talking about from Georgia, we'll bring the total of 34. Let's do the math here real quick. 34 into 56, what fraction is that? 17 out of 28. Now, I did this math a little while ago, and the answer came out to 61%. In other words, when all this is said and done with, I will have talked about 61% of the signers who uh, signed the Declaration of Independence. Were the other 39% that were not mentioned worth sharing? Absolutely. But as I had mentioned earlier, if I had talked about all 56, I probably wouldn't even be at Georgia right now. So perhaps it might be a good thing to leave the other uh, 22 whom I did not discuss to you all, the audience, to learn more about. Yes, did I read about these other 22 last year? Absolutely. But it's up to you all as an audience to want to decipher as to who is worth learning about. In other words, which one or two signers from a state are really worth learning about? Which one strikes as the most interesting? But we're going to now talk about our first signer from Georgia being Mr. Button Gwinnett. It's an interesting name. I don't think I've ever known anybody by the name of Button, but we're going to find out why he got that name. He was born around 1735 in England. He was the son of a Welsh clergyman. He was given the last name of his godmother, Barbara Button. Or rather, I should say, he ended up getting his first name because his godmother's last name wasn't so much it was Button, but that's for whom he was named after. Well, does Button Gwinnett spend money like there's, there was no tomorrow? Yes, he does. He borrowed money in every way there was possible. It was one thing to borrow, but he spent it like there was no tomorrow. He was convinced he was just going to strike it rich. So he borrows money to make a start in the new world, but he never repays the debt. In South Carolina and Georgia, believe it or not, he actually started out in South Carolina before going to Georgia. He borrowed money both times there, and he still got nowhere. How do creditors get back at him? They seize lands of his as payment method. Is Button Gwinnett a big fan of separation from England? No. Why is he not a big fan of separation from England? Well, the thing is, is that he's very hesitant on doing it because of family and business connections in England. That's an easy answer right there. It's one thing to express your opposition, but if you still have strong, loyal ties with extended family living in England, the last thing you don't want to do is perhaps go against them because then they'll shut you out of their will. However, um, who persuaded Button Gwinnett to change his mind? It wasn't his constituents from Georgia. It was a fellow signer named Lyman Hall, and I will get to him uh, in a little bit. But Lyman Hall is the one who persuaded Mr. Gwinnett to change his mind. Well, after Button Gwinnett signs the Declaration of Independence, he goes back to Georgia. He replaces the, the, out, the current state governor who died unexpectedly. Is Button Gwinnett a good governor? 
One could say yes, but after having read about him, he really wasn't. He becomes embroidered in a, really what I would say, a very unnecessary conflict with a gentleman by the name of Colonel Lachlan McIntosh, who became the head of military personal matters, or should I say of affairs. He basically... um, takes a position that that Button Gwinnett believes needs to be his. In other words, we could say that Button Gwinnett became a control freak. He resented the move and saw Mr. McIntosh as a sworn enemy. Well, let me ask you this. How do the two resolve their differences? I can tell you right now that they just didn't sit down at a table and, and come up with compromises. The two men ended up challenging each other to a duel. Most of us know what dueling is, but for any of you out there who don't know what dueling is, I can tell you this. It's a practice that dates back to the Middle Ages. And for many of years, it was a way for Southerners to resolve their disputes. That's not to say that men who lived in the Middle or Northern colonies engaged in it, but it was primarily a gentleman's Uh, way of resolving disputes, most notably in southern colonies. Well, let's, um, here's the nitty-gritty of the story. Colonel McIntosh and Button Gwinnett decide to uh, resolve their matters by engaging in a duel. They each take 12 steps back from one another. They turn around and fire at each other. Both are, both are, um, wounded. Colonel McIntosh is severely wounded, believe it or not, but Button Gwinnett is perhaps, um, his wound is more fatal than Colonel McIntosh's. Button Gwinnett ends up dying from gangrene in his leg as a result from the duel. What I should mention about dueling is this. True or false, if you didn't show up to engage in a duel, were you frowned upon as being a coward or, or let alone, I should say, a wimp? The answer is yes. If you came up, if you came out to engage in a duel, the best thing you could have done, not it, number one, was not just to have shown up, but if you were not ready to engage in a duel, you opened up your um, your gun, or let alone, I should say, your pistol, uh, because. You know, think about it. when you're engaging in a duel, you're using a smaller kind of gun. So you would have opened up your gun and taken out the bullets and dropped them to the ground. In other words, you you were surrendering by saying that, hey, today I'm not ready to engage in a duel, even though I showed up. But today just isn't the day. But if you didn't show up, you were truly frowned upon as a coward. You were mocked at. You were probably insulted. So... It was best that you just showed up and at least got it out, got your, um, what do you call it, got your wits, not your wits, but you got your uh, fears out of the way. Well, given that Mr. Gwinnett dies from dies as a result from his, the duel, this took place in 1777. He dies around the age of 42, less than a year after the Declaration of Independence was signed. He is one of two signers to die from violence. The other was Mr. George Wythe of Virginia, who was poisoned by his great-grandnephew. 
but Button Gwinnett was the only one of the signers who actually died by means of dueling. What is it? Lastly, what's interesting about Mr. Gwinnett is that there is a county in Georgia named Gwinnett County in honor of Button Gwinnett, which is just on the outskirts of Atlanta, Georgia. Signer number two is Mr. George Walton. He was born between the years 1741 and 1753. So to this day, we're not 100% sure if he, when he was exactly born. But what, what I did find out was interesting was that he was born in Virginia, but he was orphaned at a very young age and was taken in by an uncle who apprenticed him to a local carpenter. There are a couple of stories about his upbringing, but regardless, he persevered. He moved to Savannah in his 20s and while studying to become a, while studying to become a lawyer. Now, here's an easy question or should I say answer to a question, but it should be addressed. Is Georgia a predominantly loyalist or should I say a non-committal colony? That answer is yes. Mr. Walton was responsible for helping organize a series of meetings at a tavern. Of course, I don't even know if this tavern exists. But it must have been a very prominent tavern um, in Savannah for its day. It was known as Tondi's Tavern. And, of course, we all know that taverns were just more than having a meal, or should I say a fine meal. Taverns were the gateways for men to discuss their um, attitudes towards um, British policies amongst the, the colonies. Taverns were a great way to mobilize force in getting men to take up arms against the crown. Well, Mr. Walton went above and beyond to organize meetings at Tondi's Tavern to help establish Georgia's role in the revolution. Unfortunately, there was more debate but less action. It's safe to say that the people who came, while yes, they were interested in hearing, but they probably came more for the show just to say, um, sorry, Mr. Walton, but you can talk all you want, but um, we're uh, keeping our allegiance to the crown. And it should be pointed out that Georgia did not send any delegates to the First Continental Congress in 1774. Georgia was the only colony to opt out of this convention. Why did Georgia not go? I read this a while back, and this explains it all. Georgia was fighting a war against the Creek Indian Nation Confederacy. What does the colony of Georgia need to defend themselves against the Creek Indian nation? Not just the Creeks, but any Indian nation. You need arms. Where are you going to get the arms from? None other than England. If you're going to be loyal to the crown, then the crown will do everything there is in its power to support you. Why should the crown support you if you're not going to adhere loyalty? So that's why Georgia did not send delegates to the First Continental Congress, in large, and primarily in part because they were fighting a war against the Creek Indian Nation. Well, do things change? Yes, by 1775, Georgia starts sending delegates to Philadelphia, and by 1776, Mr. Walton goes north. It turns out that he actually performed very well in Congress, he was the longest-serving representative from Georgia. He stayed until 1781. Although he did 
leave Congress in 1778 to fight as a colonel in the militia. He was shot at the Battle of Savannah, and he was captured by the British, but was well-treated and earned parole. Okay, if he earned parole, you would think that he would not have been sent back to jail, but <laughs> what do you know? Once he got better and he was fighting again out on the battlefield, what do you know? He, got, um, he became a prisoner again, and he was sent to jail for a year, and he ended up getting released on a prisoner exchange. Despite suffering from gout, he still served as Georgia's chief justice, a governor, to being a U.S. senator. He was also a trustee of Franklin College, which later became the University of Georgia. Even I myself did not know that the University of Georgia was called Franklin College before um, getting its official university name, as we know today. He died in 1804. And how ironic that he lived long enough to see our nation, our, the first three presidents, um, assume office, being Washington, Adams, and Jefferson. He was a self-made success story, considering that he was orphaned, shot, and imprisoned. Our last signer of Georgia, in my opinion, is truly the most... Um, formidable and important of all three signers. His name is Lyman Hall. He was born in 1724. But what I find interesting about Lyman Hall, and the rest of you all will too, was that he was not born in um, a southern colony. Well, think about it. There is no Georgia in 1724. You've got Virginia, North, and South Carolina... It turns out Mr. Hall was raised in Connecticut. He attended Yale with an intention of becoming a minister. So he begins preaching in 1749, but was dismissed from the church due to conflict within congregation. You know what's interesting is that in today's world, there are, there are plenty of reasons why a minister could leave the church. And one reason is conflict within the congregation. I'm not sure what the conflict was in 1749, but it must have been a pretty bad one for him to leave the church. He lost his first wife after one year of being married. He remarries a few, few years later to a Mary Osborne, and they have a son. Now, here's something that should be worth mentioning, was that Mr. Hall was in the first wave of northerners to arrive south in the 1750s, and I had mentioned when talking about North Carolina that in the 1740s and 50s, North Carolina starts to see a, a wave of um, northerners or what we call middle colony being like Maryland and Virginia. But from Pennsylvania, those three colonies see a wave of people flocking to North Carolina. So Georgia experienced this is the same thing, too. What uh, town is established in Georgia in the 1750s? Sunbury, what's unique about Sunbury, it's located in the Midway District along the Georgia coast. And there is a place in Georgia just north of Savannah known as Midway. Well, Sunbury becomes a seaport hub, and, and historians now know that Sunbury is also the equivalent of like a Boca Raton, Florida. In other words, it's a Yankee transplant um, vestige. 
people flocking from the north to the south, perhaps to get away for the winter. Now, um, Sunbury, Georgia becomes the center for Patriot, uh, for the Patriot uh, cause. In other words, the Patriot uprising, in large part because Sunbury is also a loyalist area. There is a parish known as St. John's Parish, and it becomes the southern cradle of liberty. And remember, Georgia is the most remote of all 13 colonies. It's sparsely populated and had a non-threatening relationship with the crown. And as I stated earlier, Georgia did not send delegates in 1774, in part because they are fighting a war with the Creek Indian Nation. And if you are fighting a war with, the Creek in, with, with an Indian nation, who are you going to need to turn to for support? None other than England. By 1774, does Massachusetts want support from England? Absolutely not. The same can be said for Virginia. Is South Carolina wanting support from England by 1774? It's possible that they still are, but it is safe to say that even South Carolina is looking down the road and beginning to realize that, hey, independence is just a matter of time, but it might be here before we know it. Is Georgia in the same boat? The answer is no. By 1774, Lyman Hall goes to Savannah to discuss revolutionary, or should I say to discuss revolutionary ideas and the inevitable um, factor of uh, separation. He is only to be rebuked by staunch loyalists, those who are loyal to the crown, who will stay loyal to the crown until the day they die. In March of 1775, St. John's Parish goes alone, withdraws from the Georgia legislative body to hold its own convention, voted to send delegates of their own choosing to the Continental Congress without Georgia's consent. It might be safe to say that St. John's Parish could have been its own colony. It might as well have seceded from Georgia. So basically, St. John's Parish might as well be considered the uh, stepchild or the stepdaughter um, post of Georgia. Well, Lyman Hall arrives to Philadelphia in May of 1775. He is admitted by the rest of Congress as a non-voting member. However, Georgia's um, attitude about independence starts to change especially once the shots heard round the world are fired at Bunker, at um, Lexington and Concord. And even though the Patriots did not win at Bunker Hill, but knowing that we killed over 20% of the British Army, uh, roughly about 1,100 uh, British men, it is safe to say now that um, many in Georgia are beginning to wonder that, hey, the Patriots are not afraid of taking up arms against the mightiest empire in the world. Perhaps we need to start looking at some things differently. So what happens? Lyman Hall's presence is acknowledged as a result of these battles having taken, but because the battles are taking, Georgia gets on board and four other delegates come along. But in 1776, he returns to Congress and brings George Walton and Button Gwinnett. And those three men signed the document. 
After the war, he served as Georgia's governor from 1783 to 1784. He made numerous treaties with Cherokee Indian tribes, or the Cherokee Nation. He helped establish land grants for Franklin University College, which later became the University of Georgia. And remember this, before 1776, you only have nine colleges in America, but those nine colleges were not chartered. They were already established when England was still, when we were still subjects of England. The University of Georgia becomes America's first state chartered institution of higher learning. That speaks volumes, given that Georgia was the remo- was the most remote of all thirteen colonies. Lyman Hall was responsible for helping, or orchestrate the most daunting challenge. And what was that most daunting challenge? Getting Georgia to separate from England. He died in 1790 at age 66. He will be forever remembered as the signer who dragged Georgia into the Union. And had it not been for Lyman Hall, it's safe to say on one hand that we would have still been fighting a war against England but Georgia was the missing link. Other colonies were missing links for a brief period of time, but had Georgia not come along, had it not been for Lyman Hall, I don't know who else would have gotten Georgia on board. Perhaps George Walton, but I think it is fair to say that Lyman Hall was ahead of his time. He knew from the get-go that Georgia had to be on, on the same page as the other 12 colonies. Otherwise, there would not have been a united front in, in everybody coming together. Well, folks, um, it has been a great um, session, and I will be back on the air again here soon to uh, do what's called an epilogue from, sign, from the book Signing Their Lives Away, The Fame and Misfortune of the Men Who Signed the Declaration of Independence. But what a journey it's been, though, overall, starting as far north as New Hampshire, to closing out with Georgia. And remember, people, please don't take freedom for granted. So often we do. And then we need to be reminded that we do live in a great country. Yes, the world we live in today is, is a very unstable one, but we should be very thankful that we can get up each morning and know that we have a Constitution that's still in existence for over, for 200, for nearly 233 years. We should be thankful that we don't live in a government that, in a world or in a government system that's controlled by a dictator who oppresses people and doesn't give people the right to have a say. Yes, we may have differences in opinions. Yes, we may not like how things are done. But all in all, when we go to bed at night and wake up each morning, we still have a constitution to abide by. We still have Bill of Rights. We still have three branches of government that work. Not everybody lives like this. There are people who who wake up each morning in fear, wondering if they're going to even be able to know what it's like to have any kind of normalcy in terms of government. Remember, folks, the signers who signed this document weren't perfect, but they made sacrifices. Yes, they may have had their flaws, But for one shining moment, they put aside their differences. 
They put aside whatever was necessary in order to ensure that better days lied ahead. So let's give them a thanks. Let's not just thank them on the July on July 4th. Let's thank them more than just July 4th. Let's thank them for doing the inevitable because we did overthrow the mightiest empire in the world. God bless all 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence. Thank you. Take care, and I will be back on the air soon.